In this episode of TBT On Air, we are joined by Ivana Bartoletti, who is the Global Chief Privacy Officer of Wipro and co-founder of the Women Leading in AI Network. Welcome, Ivana. Thank you for joining us today. To start off, as AI is becoming more prominent in our everyday lives, what do you think needs to happen to ensure it is governed correctly and what ethical issues should be considered? Yeah, so it's a very good question. So AI, especially with the pandemic, um, I mean, AI is a broad term, but uh, we're using a lot of automation um, and, and in different areas uh, from sort of digital advertising to medicine to um, our groups having increasingly an allocative and decision-making function so they can decide, for example, whether you have access to a loan or not, whether you're in, you go through a recruitment process and, and all of that, often with human intervention, but often in a way which is a little bit opaque and not transparent. So I think now that we are at this point um, and wanted to explore and enhance the benefits of these technologies, I think it's really important to do two things. The first one is to give businesses legal certainty so that they know exactly um, how existing regulation and legislation applies in the context of AI um, because there sometimes can be sort of grey area um, whether how for example privacy law or um, anti-discrimination legislation, consumer law, uh, contract, liability. So the first element is really around um, the legal certainty so the company can experiment within boundaries but they know um, what they can and what they cannot do. And the second thing is we need to tackle head on the challenges so that we can really make the most of this technology. And I mean things like the potential and the risk of AI systems to perpetuate and hardwire the existing inequalities that we have in society right now. So it's really important that we have strong um, uh, clarity around these arms and both individuals and society as a whole, and then we're able to tackle the risks um, and make sure that companies are aware. Um, there are address mechanisms for individuals, there is proper enforcement as well as ex-ante legislation that companies have to comply with. Okay, awesome. So as governments and corporations worldwide embrace AI technologies in the pursuit of efficiency and profit, what do you think they need to do to ensure the, these pursuits don't harm our humanity? Yeah, I mean, that's excellent the way you're putting this because Artificial intelligence is, is, has, got, has got enormous potential. Um, but sometimes I think there are a lot of misconceptions around this. Um, so um, AI is created by humans. Um, the parameters, the features, the data that we feed into the systems, they are all generated by humans. And as such, um, there is nothing neutral about these machines. There is nothing neutral about these technologies because um, as there's nothing neutral about data, you know, data is, is the picture of the society and as it is, you know, with all the things that we like and we do not like, all the things that we're trying to achieve and change. So um, I think companies need to really understand this, you know, um, the important, the number one priority is, is to avoid technical solutionism. You know, companies need to say, I'm not deploying AI because 
um, is glamorous all because but it because it's there to solve a problem. It's there to you know this is the problem that I'm gonna solve. This is the the improvement that I want to make to my company and, and whatever I do, I do it in a way which is um which is in, in, by negotiation, by the, you know I, I bring my company with me, especially if it's going to impact on the jobs that, that the people have. Um, it's including if it's going to change the way the people interact between each other, and especially if there is a risk of using AI um, that can then lead to um, stereotypes being coded into the system. So I'll give you an example. If a company says, I want to use artificial intelligence in recruitment, um, then the first question I always ask is, well, why? What is the problem that you're trying to solve? You know, is it that you want to become more efficient? Is that that you want to um, make sure that you're picking the right candidates? Is it because you want to um, to make the pro that you want to, to, to enable uh, your HR people to do something else rather than sifting curriculums. Um, I always ask, what is the reason why you want to do so? Because um, because there are so much things and and, and, and also so many sort of full promises out there, you know, which always happens in, in situations like this. So what is the problems the companies are going to, to, to want to solve? And how are they going to involve in other people, um, especially coming back to the to the HR example, the people are going to be impacted the most, you know, because if you look at HR, this is where the algorithmic management of employees can be very problematic, because this is where, for example, you can continue to recruit men in a particular profession if you don't work on the data in, in a proper way. It's where, for example, you may continue to reward um, late nights and code this into a system which makes it even more difficult to challenge if, for example, your feature of a good employer is somebody who works long hours, then you end up rewarding people who with, with, don't have family responsibilities, which is mostly in sort of um, men who generally, generally take less care of, of um, uh, less share of the, of the, of the childcare. Um, so these are the areas where AI could write force rather than liberate us from stereotypes. And so I'm not saying don't do it, I'm saying be aware. And therefore, if you are aware, then you put in place the right systems, you understand the limitations, you understand the pros and cons, and then you can really um, make the most of this technology. So thank you, Ivana. And I know you mentioned in your book um, an artificial revolution on power politics and AI, that the power underpinning AI is data. How is AI powered data being used? So um, that's really a, a good question because so AI is, is certainly not a new thing. Um, I mean, we all know about our maturing being about that lovelace um, and so it's not I mean AI is not a new thing and certainly if we think about algorithms and that you know we're talking about something which is which is certainly not news what is different is the computation capabilities that we have now um, which by the way also have environmental consequences but uh, the computation capabilities that we have alongside um, the availability of, of data so it's, I mean, it's very pervasive, isn't it? Data is collected everywhere. 
and in and and also in a very indiscriminate way, which sometimes puts it at odds with, with privacy legislation. You know, it's like you you collect data from every second, every walk of life that you take. You know, whether it's when you pay with your cards or when you're paying a till of a shop or browsing online. So these availability of data is why it's it's really big change, and there are even people who think that it, it is in the indiscriminate collection of data that lies the uh, secret, you know, to achieve um, AGI, you know, the artificial general intelligence. Uh, um, but um, so in the it's the availability of data, and of course all this data gets fed into algorithms and and then obviously um, the data as we said earlier I mean that is not neutral um, and, and it depends on who's collected this data the purpose of where this data has been collected um, and to an extent you know putting somebody onto a data set there's a choice that you're making or leaving somebody out on the data set there's a choice and I'll give you an example if you go in a particular area of town and you uh, and you say um, and you start collecting data about, uh, about crime, then in a particular area of town, crime may be higher, the data may be higher, not just because there is more crime in that area, but because you've been collecting more data in, this, in that area compared to other areas because it's because of, of for example, um, historical bias. So you may say, for example, I'm collecting more data in an area which is, is like populated by black people because historic racism in our societies, and then of course, when it comes, you know, when it comes to the statistics, that particular area has higher incidence of particular crime. Um, so it's, um, it's, um, you know, who collects the data is really important. Is an agent, isn't it? You know, that person, that that organisation has enormous power um, to decide what goes and what doesn't go to data set. The same, for example, consider violence against women. In, you know, the information that you would get from the police would be very different from the information about data violence that you would collect from women themselves in a women's shelter uh, or in women in the streets even. So, you know, where you get the information from, who collects the data is really, really important. So this is why there is a risk without massaging data, without asking where is the data coming from, Ooh, where are the power dynamics within this certain database? Um, without that, uh, there is a difficult, there is a risk that we code and hardwire the existing status quo with the dynamics that we talked about earlier into algorithms that maybe make decisions or predict uh, solutions about the future. Um, so, if, you know, one example that to me is really really important is. Uh, um, the allocation of funds, you know, and, and the allocation of even surveillance and controls and checks around the individuals. Um, so, for example, if you, if a local authority decides to um, in, to put some resources into families who are at risk of, of splitting up or, or ending up into trouble, um, then if the data around historic data is being collected around a particular community. Uh, which is, is possible because the way that, that our societies work, then that particular community is going to give you the highest rate. And then these predictive technologies are going to dictate the allocation of funds and resources. And 
you have to ask you know, if you have surveillance around a particular group of people, what effect does it have on them? Um, what effect does that have on the children? Um, is that the right thing to do? Um, so these things have consequences. Um, whatever you do has consequences. So ultimately, this is really to say that organizations have to, keep, to really be clear about the, the pitfalls, about the guardrails that they want to establish. But in particular, they have to think about what am I standing for? You know, what is that I'm, I'm trying to do? You know, this technology is so transformative. How do I want to actually contribute to transformation? So to an extent, I would, I would argue that making choices in relation to data, to outcomes, to fairness, to, to, to trade-offs, all this is, is speaks to a company's value, um, a company's motivation, a company's standing in, in the world, and therefore also speaks to customers in how they want to and if they want to use them or chase for them. It really is quite terrifying how much information companies and even governments have on people and whoever lives in those countries, they seem to have as much information as they have access to. So what do you think governments need to do to protect their countries as well as everyone within it? Well, I mean, it's it's reasonable to say that you want to protect, you know, you want to protect your people, you want to protect people living in place and you, know, you want to guarantee security um, and, or you want to guarantee health, you know, we've seen it with the pandemic um, and, and, you know, health has become paramount, you know, you want to be able to to, um, to guarantee people's well-being, and, and by doing by doing so, you may temporarily restrict some people's freedoms. You know, which you know, it could be argued whether it's a restriction or not. For me, it's not, but for some others, it could be. Um, and and you know that without going into discussions of vaccine passports or green passes, but 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 um, ultimately, the key point in in here. Is, is that you know it's reasonable for a state or government to to provide for the security of the citizens. What the problem is is that sometimes we've seen um, solutions which have been driven by the sort of the trends in our society these days. So trends of datafication, which is a trend that everything has got to become data, and everything so every sort of social phenomenon is that can be reduced to sort of data. And sort of trying to surveillance, you know, that the, the, the way forward is, is necessarily surveillance. So things like facial recognition technology is being really deployed to uh, to surveil people. To, to But the consequences of that are yet to be known. You know, how our society is going to change if you establish these technologies that, that look at you and surveil you and change the way that you interact with people in the public spaces you know what impact is this going to have in the long term even for security is this is this you know is this what you know is needed to create a safer state so i think is that sort of that balance that needs to be found and, and very importantly i think is 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 the uh, the issue that you know people keep we have been told the narrative that there is a trade-off to be found between security and privacy and there is no trade-off needed there actually you, you can have both and and sometimes my worry is that we are being presented with this sort of dichotomy so that we say well obviously i want to be secure i want to feel safe so i'm 
to an extent even happen to give up my privacy but that's not the case and that's what you you um you don't um you don't um you know having that um sometimes i find that having that kind of trade-offs being presented to us is, is a bit of a it's a bit of a call you know it's a bit of a, it's a way to say um it's uh it's um it's okay you know it's okay to to, to compromise our our privacy because there should be no either all you know you can um you can especially with new technologies available um you can have um, security and privacy you know extensive surveillance is not necessarily the the answer to to um to, to, to the issue of security. In fact, it may be exactly the opposite. I have found in the tech industry, such as um, the, they didn't have access to some of the jobs because people weren't taking on people with family responsibilities. What are some of the major challenges do you think that women face? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, um, technology is a strange area and there's, um, particular is 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 also strange um, because so the relationship between women and technology in, in, is is often being complex you know because um, because sometimes technology is also being used uh, as a way of control um, especially of women and so it's really important um, to really you know not to make to, to, to simplify too much you know to really understand the complexity of the debate, you know, and, and but on top, within that is also it, if you think about coding and programming and think the history of that. I mean, it's really it, it's really interesting to look into this for a moment, if I may. So when um, at the beginning, coding and programming was considered very much as a as a um, sort of female activities, and to an extent, coding is viewed as something very precise, very methodical. And according to, to the stereotypes of the time, very suited for women. So initially, coding was very much seen as a secretarial work, um, something in uh, in uh, something very um, uh, sort of um, secretarial, multicultural that women were very good at. So at the beginning, coding was seen as a very female activity. And what happened with time is that uh, when the data, when the the, the computing power increased, that this became a very lucrative industry. And guess what? When it started to become a very lucrative industry, then coding and programming became a very male-dominated industry as well. And if you look at the publicity and commercials at the time, um, and there's a wonderful New York Times long series that really talks about all this. If you look at the commercials of the time, then what happens is that you see that the, 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 the commercials of some of the tech companies, they start to depict the programmer not as a woman knitting <laughs> to an extent, but as a, a man who's booted and suited with a tie and, and, and is a manager. So to an extent, the managerialization of, of programming, that happened alongside the increase of computational power, the realization that there was a wealth of, 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 of opportunities underpinning the, the data economy and globalization and all of that. So as ever, we're going to be at the front end of, of the economics demands and, and changes you know which have been which they've been impacted by rather than driving them and this is what you know um this is what one needs to change and is progressively changing but not fast enough um but the the um the obstacles right now in this is this is still a very male dominated industry there's still so many stereotypes out there 
there is still a lot of reluctance in, in, in early education to, to really um, get rid of, of, of stereotypes and, and all of that. And there was still um, an industry in technology which is dominated by um, long hours, um, by culture that is not um, is not suitable and is, is not appreciated by many, not just women. Um, I would also add one last consideration on this, that is, uh, is if it's bad for women, I would also say that it's, it's much worse for women by the intersection of different discrimination. So um, I think about race, and I can say that uh, you know some of the most interesting voices and the most powerful voices that have been really leading in the world and forced tech companies to come to terms with all of this have been the voices of black women, from Tim Jebrel to um, to Joy Bulawini. Um, there's been some amazing and, and leaders in this space who have really um, led the change and. I, you know, all listeners here would really like everyone to um, to pay respect and to go and, and read what they say and, and also watch the film Coded Bias because it's absolutely fantastic on this very topic. And as the founder of the Influential Woman Leading in AI Network, what advice can you give women in tech, especially with the, within the AI sector? Yeah, so my first advice would be don't be don't be put off by the technology. I mean, AI is far more than technology. You don't have to be in tech to be involved in AI. Um, what the world is missing at the moment is not just technologists. What the world is missing at the moment is visionaries who can lead industries and businesses and understand where and when to deploy AI. Um, this is very important. So yes, we need more women in coding. Yes, we need more women in programming. But I would want and I would encourage women from every background to understand that there are so many different ways to get involved into AI. Find AI is about transformation, it's about innovation, um, it's about business leadership, it's about policy, um, it's about um, change management, it's about diversity, it's about uh, auditing. So, so many different areas. It's not just about the coding and the programming, which is yet obviously absolutely crucial. Um, but, um, but, it's, but if we want this technology to work, then we need people from all sorts of different backgrounds being involved in at every stage of, of this. And one key stage of this is the decisions at company level on what, you know, how are we going to deploy it, where are we going to deploy it, deploy it, how are we going to, to do it in a way which is going to be successful and work for other people, for our people in our communities. So to not just think about tech. Um, and tech can come at any point. At any point in life, I really like some of the companies that are what some of the big companies are doing right now, which is they're recruiting people in tech coming from different backgrounds, psychology, um, literacy, and they are teaching the tech. <laughs> you know, you can teach the technologies, but what you cannot teach is the understanding of the complexity around developing and deployment the deployment AI. Awesome, I think that's a good way to close off. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you a few questions, kind of just to deep dive into Ivana Bartoletti. First up, what is your favorite tech product at the moment? Um, I don't think I've got one. I mean, I like all technology that has me to keep track of, of you know, the way I, I, I do running or, yeah, so I think I would say that. Okay, and who is the most influential person in your life and why? As I, the, I think 
I mean, I would mention a woman who is, uh, it was my, it was my, she was my manager, this guy, her name is Nina Barakadzai, and she has been very influential in my journey to privacy because I, I was working already in privacy, but she really gave me the, the encouragement to, to make my own mark in this profession, not just to, to, to apply the law, to talk about compliance, but to really make the mark and, and imagine a different way of doing things at the intersection with technology, with sociology, and, and so she, I really, you know, for me, she's been really, really influential. Okay, and then finally, what is the current book on your nightstand? Uh, yeah, so at the moment is is uh, decoupling, which is a book from China, and is uh, is the it talks about how we're witnessing and we're seeing the decoupling of strategies um, around sort of China and and the um, and the US and the West in, in general in terms of ambitions, innovation, and and AI strategy. Awesome. So thank you, Ivana. This has been a really great discussion. And I'm so happy to have had the chance to speak to you. And with that, we would like to thank you all for listening to TBT on Air's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please sign up for access to top business tech's premium online mobile content, including the latest global trends, news, and insights. Our online publication allows you to access unlimited, credible knowledge and information daily through written articles, podcasts, and webinars. To do this, all you have to do is visit www.tbtech.co.